Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, good morning, good evening, if you're in a time zone other than the London zone. Um, I would like to welcome you. My name is Tim Besley uh, to this uh, Hayek uh, program lecture, the LSE on Hayekian Behavioral Economics by Cass Sunstein. Um, Cass needs very little introduction uh, to many of you, I'm sure, or to most of you. Uh, and uh, um, he's the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard, based in the Harvard Law School, uh, the 2018 winner of the Holberg Prize, a prolific author, including the, the much uh, uh, debated and discussed Nudge. Um, he's a distinguished legal scholar and a public intellectual. Um, the Hyatt program uh, was started at the LSE to reinvigorate debates around uh, the, the, the themes in Hayek's work. And uh, um, when we discovered that, that Cass had been thinking about how to marry insights from behavioral economics to Hayekian thinking, um, we just thought it would be wonderful to invite him here to give this lecture. And I won't delay things any longer. We'll have chance for Q&A later. I'll just hand over the, the floor to, to, to Cass to develop his ideas. Thanks for being with us, Cass. Really looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much and uh, hi everyone. I should say that it's a thrill both because of the amazingness of this audience and because of the topic. Uh, the title of the paper is almost Hayekian behavioral economics is not an oxymoron, but that would be kind of awkward. So we're leaning against. I should say that the origins of this project actually are in my time in the US government. When we were doing fuel economy standards, which are part of climate change policy, and we were doing them for a number of years. And I was part of a group who was saying, we have to be very careful to have a midterm review because our assumptions about technology and about economic um, context and also about the consequences of fuel economy mandate might not be right and change circumstances might uh, 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 surprise us. And that means we need to have a reassessment in the middle because we planners don't entirely know what we're doing. And I went around the White House saying this is really a Hayekian point. And I think in a tribute to the Obama administration, uh, no one found that concept unfamiliar. Um, the fact that this is an example of fuel economy is also timely because all over the world, leaders have to think about what kind of fuel economy or analytically it's very similar energy efficiency mandates to impose. This is part of climate change policy. These are not nudges. They are, in my view, argu arguably the most important use of behavioral science and policy in the world today, in the sense that for reasons we'll get to shortly, the uh, fuel economy and energy efficiency mandates in their current form must have a behavioral justification. Otherwise, they don't have a justification in their current form. Europe has not, in my understanding, and the UK has not, in my understanding, this may be a tribute to the limits of my understanding, but this is where I think we are, has not focused systematically on some of the uh, puzzles here. And I know that the Biden administration is going to have to do that 
really, really soon. Um, the reason the puzzles are puzzles is that to get ahead of the story, for fuel economy mandates or energy efficiency mandates, the dominant benefit in terms of numbers in pounds, in euros or dollars, the dominant number is consumer savings. There are significant savings in terms of energy uh, independence and in terms of air pollution and greenhouse gases, those are significant. But in their current form, the energy efficiency and fuel economy mandates are generally uh, producing benefits that have a strong majority of the following form, consumers save money. Now, from the economic point of view, that's immediately uh, uh, baffling. And the reason is, if consumers want to buy a Tesla or a Prius or an energy efficient refrigerator, they can. If they're not, it's because they don't want a Tesla or a Prius or an energy efficient refrigerator. Who are we to mandate it? We planners. Isn't that, in Hayekian terms, a fatal conceit? Okay, that's my particular case, and I'm going to go back and forth between the particular case and more abstract theory. Uh, Hayek, of course, was deeply skeptical about planners. His great essay on the dispersed nature of knowledge in society emphasizes, with particular emphasis on prices and quantities, that planners just know less than people do. So the price of shoes or cell phones, Hayek was prescient, he didn't foresee that, but the price of cell phones as well as shoes or refrigerators or automobiles or socks is a product of the knowledge of lots and lots of people and no planner, however um, in, in expert and however uh, well-motivated is going to be able to capture that knowledge. So Hayek's claim against planning, and this is about product characteristics as well as prices and quantities, has to do with an epistemic limit on the part of planners. Hayek also spoke unenthusiastically about, uh, he spoke simultaneously unenthusiastically about planners and enthusiastically about choosers. That is in his work lighter than Mill's claims in On Liberty, intriguingly lighter than Mill, who was emphatic that choosers know better than outsiders do. Hayek was a little gentler there, but it is there that choosers have knowledge in the individual case that outsiders lack. Hayek, too, emphasized the importance of evolved understandings and norms that are built into cultural practices and even consumer judgments that planners won't know the uh, substance, and here Hayek sounding a, a bit like Burke on prejudice, which Burke celebrated. Hayek didn't quite do that, but in referring to the knowledge that's captured in norms for which no individual is responsible, was giving a tribute to decentralized judgment over expert judgment. Okay, some of Hayek's claims, not about the limits of expert knowledge, but about the limits of individual knowledge and the uh, wonderfulness of evolved norms and understandings, these have taken a battering from behavioral findings. 
where the behavioral findings along one dimension aren't fundamentally incompatible with Hayekian foundations, and that is about a simple absence of information. So consumers may not know about the fuel economy of cars. Hayek was not opposed to information provision. In fact, in Road to Serfdom, he was for it. Um, and the other side is more troublesome, I think, for at least true Hayekians, which is the findings of uh, behavioral biases. And here the idea is if people procrastinate, if they suffer, sometimes benefit, but if they suffer from inertia, if they are unrealistically optimistic, if they are present biased, that it might be that one side of the ledger, that is that side of the ledger, which is captured in the comparative advantage of the chooser, um, is weakened compared to what we thought, let's say, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and even 70s and 80s. Okay, when I say this is going to be about Hayekian behavioral economics, the goal is to take on board, and this is maybe not in 2021 the stylish thing to do, but it's going to take on board, I hope, the fundamentals of Hayek's thinking while also acknowledging the truth in the behavioral findings. So the central idea, very simple, is a neo-Hayekian approach would seek to reduce the knowledge problem, which was Hayek's, I think, most enduring uh, contribution to social thought, would reduce the notional knowledge problem by asking what individual choosers would do under epistemically favorable conditions. So the basic idea is that Hayekian behavioral economics is not enthusiastic about the expertise of the planners. It is very nervous about that. What it seeks to do is to reduce the knowledge problem by saying, what would individual choosers do under epistemically favorable conditions? Now, it might be that one version of Hayekianism would be sufficiently nervous about planners that that question would make Hayekian hair start to fall out thinking, what do planners know about what choosers would do under epistemically favorable conditions, even putting to one side the public choice problem emphasized by Buchanan and followers. The Hayekian knowledge problem, it would be said, is a second order problem for planners trying to ask what I'm saying is the, uh, is the right question. I'm going to try to respond to that shortly, but let's have a very quick detour and say that by describing this as Hayekian behavioral economics or neo-Hayekian economics, I am not trying to excavate something and say that Hayekian would say this rather than that on the ground that that challenge in contemporary circumstances is a kind of fool's errand and that inevitably a judgment about what Hayek would do in light of the findings of modern behavioral science and modern behavioral economics is an interpretive question in Ronald Dworkin's sense. I have to explain that. But the opposition is between excavation, which I say is actually epistemically um, a fool's errand. It's interpretive in Dworkin's sense, where the interpretive a uh, challenge is to make best constructive sense out of the materials that we have. And gosh, we have a lot of them from Hayek. The, the claim is that to say what is a Hayekian approach isn't to say foolishly Hayek would say X 
with respect to a question which Hayek didn't answer, but which is to say, what would Hayek most sensibly do given what he believed? And I'm urging that the, uh, the right question, I suggest, is the epistemically favorable conditions one. That is what Hayek would do. There is an alternative would do on interpretive grounds rather than excavation grounds. There is an alternative which we can associate with Ralph Hertwig, the brilliant German psychologist who is a friend and co-author of mine. Uh, Hertwig's approach emphasizes uh, boosting people's capacity for agency and emphasizes ecological rationality. That's a contender for a form of Hayekian behavioral economics. Uh, and it's certainly part of the picture. I want to suggest that the question I'm asking, the epistemically favorable condition one, is also part of the picture. Okay, I've acknowledged that that one might make hair start to fall out for true Hayekians. And to meet that challenge, we have to discipline the question. And I suggest that is doable by asking five subsidiary questions. And these are empirical questions. These aren't highfalutin. First question, what do consistent choosers unaffected by self-evidently irrelevant factors end up choosing? So if choosers who are unaffected by self-evidently irrelevant factors choose X, that's important to know. And it might be that that's authoritative for the Hayekian because the consistent chooser is um, unaffected by the epistemically unfavorable fact, let's say that it's cold outside on one day and warm outside on one day, stipulating that whether it's cold or warm is irrelevant to what savings plan you should choose. Second, what do informed choosers choose? You can tell people things and see what they do. If you learn what they do, once you've told them something, that has a kind of usability that would not be the case if people have no clue about, let's say, economic savings from a Tesla. Third question, what do active choosers choose? If passive choosers end up, let's say, in one situation and active choosers end up in another situation, we have reason to favor the active choosers because they are not potentially suffering from inertia. It may be passive choosers end up in one situation just because they haven't bothered to choose, not because they're content with where they are. Fourth question, when people are free of behavioral biases, such as present bias or unrealistic optimism, what do they choose? And there are ways of getting a purchase on that by, let's say, throwing people's future in their faces, not in an aggressive way, but giving them clarity about the economic situation if they don't save for retirement, or if they do get, let's say, a fuel inefficient car, what do they choose? If they choose not to save, or if they choose the fuel inefficient car, then that's what they want. It's not a product of a behavioral bias. It's a product of an unbiased, informed choice. Last of the five questions, what do people choose when their view screen is broad, such that they're not suffering from limited attention? So it might be with respect to, let's say, the terms of a credit card or a mortgage, or with respect to the features of a product, they're, they aren't focusing on what David Labson and others call shrouded attributes. And if you unshroud the, shroud the attributes, what do people choose? So the question is a little more 
simplified than the fiveness of the five questions suggest, you're just asking what do consistent, informed, active, behaviorally unbiased people choose when their view screen is broad. And once you know that, then you know what people do. And that can be a guide for a choice architect or a nudger or a mandator even deciding what the right policy is. Now there are a thousand and one cautionary notes and to get at the cautionary notes, I'm going to give an application of Hayekian behavioral economics. And that's gonna be the remainder of the remarks. So we're gonna get concrete for a moment with your indulgence. And if you start to think it's a little bit tedious, notice if you would that this is uh, at the heart of climate change policy in Europe, in China, in uh, North America, in South America. And it is an exemplar of behaviorally informed policy in a context where the stakes are super high in the sense that the wrong choice can produce economic and environmental losses big time, or it could produce catastrophe for the consumer in the form of all sorts of products that they hate. That could be a possible outcome. Okay, the behavioral hunch from the standpoint of many regulators is that um, uh, the policy preferred outcome on standard economic grounds which is inform consumers so that they protect their own interest, interests and have a corrective tax to control the externalities. That's the neoclassical view. The behavioral hunch is that that might be wrong. The reason it might be wrong is that even if you inform people, you will not generate the volume of consumer savings that you can get if you have a mandate. Now that's a hard thing to say, and it kind of bites a Hayekian bullet, suggesting that the planner knows, as the consumer choosers don't, that they will be economically better off with a mandate than they would be without one, because they're gonna save a lot of money over the life of the vehicle, and information won't get them there. So this is a hard uphill fight to win. It's like a war where you are marching and, every, and the people on the other side have guns that are on top of the hill. But the, the, the behavioral hunch is that there are big consumer savings that the standard neoclassical prescription doesn't give you. Now, I'm not talking in saying this is a behavioral hunch about the work of, let's say, Hunt Alcott, who's a very good economist who has some work which is kind of qualifiedly supportive of this conclusion. I'm talking about regulators in my beloved country. In the leading discussion by our Department of Transportation and by our uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the government called out the energy paradox saying, and here I'm gonna quote, consumers appear not to purchase products that are in their economic self-interest. There are strong theoretical reasons why. Consumers might be myopic. They might lack a full appreciation of information even when it's presented. They might be averse to the short-term losses associated with the higher prices of energy and efficient products. The benefits of energy efficient vehicles might not be sufficiently salient to them. 
that's a very compressed catalog of some behavioral findings. I use the word hunch advisedly because it's not, as I described it, evidence-based. It's more a hunch. The hunch has been vindicated by our regulators by a number, which shows that the consumer savings from aggressive fuel economy regulations are the vis in the vicinity of 500 billion euro over the lifetime of the vehicles, whereas the monetized greenhouse gas savings are in the vicinity of 50 billion euros. And notice though I was an English major and not a math or economics major, even I know that 50 billion is a small fraction of the 500 billion, thus vindicating the suggestion at the beginning that consumer savers savings crush environmental benefits, which suggests that the fuel economy regulation, if all we care about is externalities, should be much more modest than what we're actually observing, both in North America and in Europe. Okay, that's a little bit of a secret, by the way, not in the sense that it's hidden, but in the sense that it's not widely known that the energy efficiency and fuel economy rules to have a cost-benefit justification, even with a really high social cost of carbon, have to speak in terms of the consumer savings, which raise the Hayekian red flag. Okay, the behavioral version of the Hayekian enterprise is asking, what do people choose under epistemically favorable conditions? And actually, we know a lot about that. So we know from studies of consumer behavior that active choosers, remember that's part of the framework, active choosers are highly attentive to gasoline prices. They probably aren't quite as attentive as they should be given their own economic self-interest, but they are highly attentive, which is a point largely for the neoclassical objection to the fuel economy standards. So that's point number one. Point number two, we know from recent findings that efforts to overcome consumer lack of information and consumer biases don't produce significantly different choices on the part of consumers. So some quite rigorous randomized experiments uh, suggest that if you throw economic savings in consumers' faces to overcome lack of information, and if you make it highly salient to overcome lack of attention, consumers end up choosing basically the same thing. Okay, these are suggestions that the consumer savings might be illusory to the extent that active choosers and informed choosers whose biases are overcome, there's evidence to suggest those consumer savings aren't at least in the magnitude given real. Okay, that's one part of the empirical picture suggesting at this point that the Hayekian behavioral economist asking the right question is gonna be nervous about aggressive fuel economy standards. Okay, here's some data the other way. Automotive manufacturers think on the basis of their own data, the typical consumers pay upfront for only one to four years of fuel savings, which is a fraction of the lifetime discounted present value. So people in the automobile industry say, there's a problem here. Consumers aren't 
buying what they should buy given their economic interest. That seems a little baffling, but there's data suggesting that after a significant correction of an erroneously stated mile per gallon measure, consumers were unresponsive. That is, once the data changed, so the consumers saw the correct miles per gallon measure, having seen the false one, consumers made the same choice. So this data also rigorous real world, not experiment, experiment, experimental, concludes that consumers act myopically. They're indifferent between $1 in discounted fuel costs and 15 to 38 cents in the vehicle purchase price when discounting at 4%. And that's a pretty high discount rate, which suggests that to make the consumer choice rational, we'd have to have a discount rate, which is approximately as high as the discount rate of my Labrador Retriever dogs. And they have a very, very high discount rate. Supportive of the idea that consumers aren't making sensible choices in view of their self-interest, there's a puzzle, which is that a lot of consumers aren't buying hybrid vehicles, even in circumstances in which everything we know suggests that they ought to be doing that. So a number of consumers choosing between, let's say, Vehicle X and Vehicle Y, where Vehicle Y is identical to Vehicle X, except it's a hybrid, except that, which means that it's more expensive upfront, but they're saving money over the lifetime of the vehicle. The suggestion is it's very hard to defend the choice for the non-hybrid vehicle, even, and this is the key point, considering non-pecuniary attributes, such as performance and cargo space. So I'm whispering, <coughs> not because I'm emotionally moved, but because my voice wants me to whisper, maybe because this data is politically incorrect. The data is highly suggestive that consumers are not making the right choice. They are, let's call it hybrid aversion in circumstances in which hybrid aversion isn't um, uh, explicable in terms of product characteristics. I know the Hayekian at this point is getting nervous. I want Hayekians, of which I am in significant part one, to kind of hang with the argument here, asking whether there are there is an account of epistemologically or epistemically favorable conditions under which we can make sense of this finding. The broadest point is that the government's own numbers, and this is true in nations that have investigated the question, are consistently finding that there is a significant consumer welfare gain from fuel economy standards, suggestive that um, information alone isn't sufficient to overcome the bias. The Hayekian suspicion is that the government's numbers are missing something important and that there's some product characteristic which the numbers don't pick up that consumers do pick up, which is suggestive that, okay, you're making the fleet more fuel efficient. So there's more you know, consumer money over the lifetime of the vehicle, but it's not only that the vehicle's costing more upfront, there's also some product characteristic that's worse that's certainly possible, but the Hayekian behavioral econ economist with behavioral in italics would say to the Hayekian behavioral economist with Hayekian italics, 
show me, show me that characteristic. And if you can show the characteristic, the uh, burden of justification is on the skeptic about the consumer savings. Okay, I'm going to rehearse now. I'm, I'm not far from done. I'm going to re rehearse in relatively short order where we are with fuel economy. And the same analysis would apply to energy efficiency mandates. And the idea is basically three question marks rather than a check mark yes or check mark no. And three means not, there are three question marks in the specific sense. It means we just don't know, which means that the data is uh, consistent, reasonably consistent with the inference, consumers aren't making terrible mistakes and we should just inform them. I think the technical term is up the wazoo so that they make as informed choices as possible and no mandates. That's Hayekianly plausible. Also Hayekianly plausible I'm suggesting is under the right framework for epistemically favorable conditions. We have adequate reason to believe that consumers are making a mistake which suggests that fuel economy mandates are justified on consumer welfare grounds notwithstanding its mandatory nature. And that's what the data is broadly consistent with. Okay, uh, more important than a conclusion with respect to fuel economy and energy efficiency is the general point, which is that it's really good to have a research project, which, and now I'm collecting a bunch of papers with varying levels of ambition, which are actually doing this, and asking, what do consistent choosers, unaffected by self-evidently irrelevant factors, end up choosing? Jacob Golden at Stanford has pursuing that. What do informed choosers choose? Michael Greenstone at Chicago is asking that. What do active choosers do? Hunt Alcott at NYU is asking that. When people are free of behavioral biases, such as present bias or unrealistic optimism, what do they choose? One of the greatest, I think, current Hayekians, though I don't know if he'd describe himself that way, Doug Bernheim at Stanford is asking that. What do people choose when their view screen is broad and they don't suffer from limited attention? Uh, Dmitry Tobinsky is asking that question. Okay, the broader points are that uh, it might be extravagant to suggest that the interventions I've been exploring defended by reference to people's choices under epistemically favorable conditions are Hayekian kind of bold letters. But I hope it's not extravagant to say that they're in Hayek's general spirit as certain forms of behavioral informed planning are not and that they're respectful of his most fundamental concerns. And I hope it's not extravagant to say that those most fundamental concerns of Hayek's to insist that they should be our concerns too. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Cass. And uh, lots of questions coming in. What I'm gonna do is I've been keeping an eye on that and I'm gonna try and sort of take thematic uh, questions as much as I am going to ask individual questions that have been posed. So, so one uh, 
question is if, if we um, believe it in the importance of choice, um, there's a lot of um, uh, influence, one might say, of social media and fake news and other things. Um, how, how does that fit into the picture? I mean, does one just ignore that and the influence of that on choice? I mean, maybe empirically, we don't really know how much influence it really has, but, but does that, does, 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 do you have a concern in, in, in your framework for, for how that might be working and influencing people's decisions? Mr. Hayek, meet Mr. Marcuse. That's the, the, the feeling of the question. So Marcuse was very uh, focused on the freedom reducing choice determining characteristic of something he didn't like that I love, which is capitalism. Um, I think the, the, the appropriate approach is to say that we in general want to respect individual choice and to have um, a regulation of unfair trade practices and potentially more regulation of social media in particular, certainly if it has monopolistic features. We want to have controls on uh, fraud and deception. It might be that Hayek and Marcuse could actually have a conversation. And this is an adventurous and somewhat reckless thing I've just said. Maybe they did. Maybe there should be a movie about their conversation. Um, but they could have a conversation about manipulation. And a suggestion is that there ought to be consideration, let's say, of a right not to be manipulated. Um, whether falsehoods on social media with respect to X and Y and Z should be regulated is a very large question. Uh, for the humble domain of fuel economy regulation, kind of a first approximation is let people buy the cars they want so long as they're informed and so that there is regulation that controls externalities and internalities if there's a sufficient justification for that. And I've suggested kind of two and a half cheers for the conclusion that there are, but humility about whether those two and a half should be three. And, and related to that, I mean, in the classic account of choice, we take people's preferences as fixed. Um, and we, I think there's a fair degree of empirical evidence that, that people's views about um, climate change and uh, green uh, policies more generally have shifted. So, and, and, and it can shift in response to the choices people make. They may be habit forming or different ways of thinking about that. How, how does that fit into the picture? Is it, is it essential to you that, that, that preferences are, are fixed and stable and that choices always take place within that? Or is there a way of you thinking about how, pref how preference dynamics work within this framework you're suggesting? Okay, so um, you might take the, that's a great question. So, um, let's go at it from a non-Hayekian direction, or maybe not particularly Hayekian direction. There are certain product characteristics, and I have data on one, so I'll give the one I have data on, which is mandatory cameras in cars, so you see in back. I don't know if you have that in the UK. We have that in the United States, where every car has to have a camera in back. It might be that on preference satisfaction grounds, that's really hard to defend. 
that consumers could buy and push for cars with cameras, rear view cameras in them if they want. But if the market isn't providing that, then let a thousand flowers bloom. The data I have suggests there's a preference endogeneity issue there, where if you've driven a car with a camera in it, you really love it. And you'd have to be paid a ton to get rid of it, even though people similar who haven't driven those cars aren't demanding it. So that's a preference endogeneity issue. Uh, the presentation that you heard and the paper that I'm exploring is less theoretically ambitious than that. It just says under epistemically favorable conditions, what do people do? And that suggests that if people uninformed choose, let's say product X, but informed choose product Y, then we have a nudge project and conceivably more if people who are present bias choose product X and not present product, product, present bias product Y, then we have an argument for doing something either to nudge or potentially mandate Y. I would have a presumption for nudging rather than mandate, but since human welfare is our criterion, that presumption wouldn't be a religion. And Hayek's with me on that, by the way. He was not, he didn't have mandate phobia. I'm, I'm, I'm exploring the same issue with respect to technology as well. I mean, there's a fair bit of evidence, some quite good evidence, that fracking in the U.S. didn't only influence uh, consumption of uh, of gas, but actually changed uh, patenting behavior towards things which make more intensive use of fossil fuels. So over time, the choices that people make and the incentives they face can end up changing fundamentally the technologies that get used. Um, again, does that fit in, into your framework? And how does one think about that in Hayekian terms? Because if it's just down to the choices being made, then apparently there's no role for the government to direct technological change or in, in any particular direction. Okay, good. Um, so I'm gonna go back and forth between University of Chicago and Hayekianism, uh, which aren't the same, I don't think, though Hayek spent some time there. So for technological change, a first cut would be uh, con control the externality through a corrective tax, and then we'll get the right level of technological change. So th th this is going to be against the thrust of my paper um, for let's say greenhouse gases have a carbon tax and make it equivalent to the social cost of carbon, which is you know probably in the vicinity of 50 to 150 euros and then have the world do it. And then we'll have the right level of, of technological change. I, I tend to be favorably disposed to that such that uh, a mandate that would direct technological change would be on Hayekian grounds inferior to that. Because if the government says, you know, we want this product, it might not know that the company can come up with that product. So there's that. That's University of Chicago with a kind of Hayekian flavor. Many current Hayekians, I think, would be uh, temperamentally disposed to markets, markets, markets. And we're going to see a whole lot of stuff. Um, a corrective tax wouldn't be anathema, 
but the cheerleading would be let the creativity of the entrepreneur go. And then we're going to see unimaginably amazing inventions. Uh, I, I, I think a carbon tax is a good idea. Okay, cool. Um, um, let me now come to actually one of the first questions that appeared in, 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 the, in the chat and a popular one um, about how do we think AI and uh, is affecting the capacity of government to regulate our behavior? I mean, over, over time, um, may, maybe some of the objections that Hayek made to social planning in the road to serfdom would, would uh, at least uh, be tempered by... Uh, new approaches to getting the kind of knowledge that Hayek said was impossible to get just because modern systems of AI will be able to extract so much more information about how people behave. So, so is, there a, is there an approach to that that you, you, you can offer for thinking about, well, is there still a very strong case for limiting that even if government actually gets rather good at social planning? Okay. Um, uh... Hayek, in certain passages in the Constitution of Liberty and in work written at, at that time, uh, says that epistemic limits on the part of outsiders are the chief argument for liberty, which is a very dramatic thing to say. It makes him sound really like a utilitarian who's, uh, who's uh, in some ways a by-the-way respecter of freedom from the standpoint of, let's say, some Kantians. But some Hayekian real specialists, as I am not, I'm a enthusiast and a learner, but not, not a lifetime of reading of Hayek, uh, cautioned me saying, if you really look at the full corpus, Hayek had a moral, moral conviction for liberty, which he recognized was contentious, but which was not about uh, knowledge. It was about um, freedom and its moral priority. So if AI is telling doctors uh, who has particular susceptibility to heart disease, there isn't a particular problem from the standpoint of freedom. It's just the epistemic problem that the doctors face is greatly reduced. I'm thinking that in Hayek's core concern, could you have AI that could tell us something about the appropriate prices for shoes? And uh, I think it's the case that the ultimate answer is no, because of the unpredictability of social interactions and learning over time, even for really, really advanced AI. Now, it might be 30 years from now or a week from now, that will seem so... Uh, January 2021. So what I'm not sure of is whether it's the epistemic limits that current AI faces or whether it's in the nature of the beast. I'll free associate just a tiny bit on that. Um, uh, Timur Kuran has some great papers about the unpredictability of revolutions. And he says two reasons they're unpredictable is that you don't have knowledge of people's thresholds for participating in revolutions, and even if you have that knowledge, social interactions among participants, it's in, just in the nature of the beast that you can't predict that. And I think it's consistent with Curran's writing now in the 1990s, that artificial intelligence isn't going to predict when we're going to have the next Arab Spring. And I tend to think that that's right. 
and, and one dimension of problems that suggests AI is incapable of solving is a really good question, but Hayek would be, I think, and this is interpretive rather than excavation, would be um, uh, inclined to the view that a lot of things about prices and quantities, AI just can't solve that, it can't know. Only markets can do it. Great. Um, there have been questions around um, how your approach can be applied to business decision-making. I guess the sort of classical behavioral economics approach just thinks of the individual as the unit of decision-making, but so many of the important decisions that affect us are going to be decisions made uh, in business. Now, of course, business is run by individuals, but it's also run by a much more complex system of governance than maybe individual decision-making. So is, is there a way of thinking about... Um, how much freedom business should have to operate independently, much of the same way as you've been talking about the amount of freedom that individuals can have. Is it, do you have a framework for thinking about business versus individuals in that sense? Sure, and offhand it would be broadly the same. So if you have a business that's imposing externalities, let's suppose, I know Porsche is doing a lot that's environmentally very advanced, and there are some companies that produce automobiles that aren't. And if a company is doing things that are not environmentally great, we would want as a first cut, internalize the externality, and as a second cut, um, a regulation, if it's internalizing the externality isn't possible, or if for one or another reason, regulation is better. Uh, companies ought to be, and I encountered this a lot in my time at the University of Chicago, uh, immune from the behavioral biases that individuals are susceptible to because the market will punish them. If you are a present biased company, that only thinks about the next two weeks, you're gonna get outcompeted by the one that isn't. And certainly if you're an unrealistically optimistic company, uh, you're going to make some plans that are going to fail miserably and you'll lose. So one view would be it's the same framework, but we don't have to worry so much about business error from the standpoint of regulation, except when we're talking about externalities. Uh, there, there's nice data suggesting that that's too optimistic about companies so that companies with respect to, let's say, things environmental, sometimes are myopic, they're slow adopters. So best practice regulation might be a good idea. And if it really is best practice, it can be in a very broadly Hayekian spirit, though there are Hayekians who would think, you know, one of the zillion practices and the planner doesn't know what's best. So this is a long way of saying that regulation of business for externalities, I think we would handle in the conventional way. Uh, when businesses are making decisions that are hurting themselves, uh, there are things to do that can at least not. Now, you, you mentioned that you, you were supportive of, um, of carbon taxes, but let's take specifically the gas tax and let's take specifically the U.S., which has among the lowest uh, taxes on uh, motor fuel of anywhere in the, in the, in the world. Um, is there a, I mean, it, it would, a classic social planner approach would have no trouble at all with saying that, you know, Biden should come in and significantly raise the gas tax. I'm not sure that would be very popular, but suppose he did. Um, 
is that troublesome for a Hayekian behavioral economist to say, in the end, the only way to, to have that kind of really large scale behavioral change is going to be traditional instruments like just making it very, very expensive for people to do things that they like to do, like driving, um, well, like driving petrol vehicles, at least. Um, do you see a, do you see that as anathema to a Hayekian approach that you could in the end come down in favor of saying that's the big one that's the only way we can have this kind of radical change? Well, okay, so Hayek was very alert to the existence of externalities. He knew Pagu's work and he spoke of externality internalization favorably. Uh, so that's part of his framework. It would be shocking if it weren't. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure that President-elect Biden, um, President-to-be shortly Biden, is in favor of a carbon tax. Not 100%, but close to it publicly. And I think he may have been the only Democratic candidate who was publicly in favor of a carbon tax. You might think that uh, I'm for it, but citizens aren't and I am their representative and I can't force it on an unwilling public or shouldn't, that would be a point of view. Or you might think under extremely challenging economic conditions, this isn't a really good idea. Uh, those are both thinkable thoughts. You might think that the, uh, the idea of a carbon tax would be better than energy efficiency and fuel economy regulations, but we can't have the first and the second is better than neither. So to think of the, the, the regulatory approach as a second best is completely reasonable. Uh, I think that would be admissible for Hayek, but with uh, um, some tears and maybe some cries of pain. Um, for obvious reasons. What I'm suggesting is a little, maybe a lot iconoclastic, which that I hope this didn't get uh, missed in the, the flow of, or the flood of words, is that I'm suggesting that a fuel economy or energy efficiency regulation could be better than a corrective tax because it could have not higher net benefits potentially because a fuel economy or energy efficiency tax doesn't help consumers. Whereas a fuel economy or energy efficiency mandate on assumptions that have three question marks next to them, but not an X are helping consumers save a lot of money. Also, my, dog, my dogs are barking with great enthusiasm. That's how they apply. So they're in favor of fuel economy mandates. Thanks. Um, so, uh, um, so another question about um, where where you think Hayek stood on. Was there any evidence that Hayek supported mandates or even was willing to entertain a more welfareist framework of weighing up costs and benefits? Or do you think for a Hayekian, in a sense, liberty is an indivisible thing and you can't really think of it in, in those trade-off terms, which of course become very ingrained in particularly modern economics, but modern po policy analysis. But, but for, for you, do you see those two as not inconsistent? They're perfectly 
reconcilable ideas? Okay, Hayek, broadly speaking, was in the neoclassical economic tradition with respect to mandates. So his problem was with socialist style planning, which he saw everywhere, including in countries that were, let's say, uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Delano. And Roosevelt didn't consider himself uh, a socialist, but Hayek kind of did. So he was against New Deal stuff of multiple kinds. The idea of requiring polluters to do something so that they don't harm others, far from being anathema to Hayek, was congenial to Hayek's own thinking. So let's call it a University of Chicago approach would be to say mandates are justified in the case in which there's harm to others. That's something which Hayek didn't oppose. Now, modern Hayek, Hayekians, and I think probably Hayek himself would ask some questions about maybe in the real world, the planner's cluelessness with respect to how to internalize the externality would be worse than allowing the externality not to be internalized, maybe. So if you were very hard on the planner, you might not be clear that the real world planner should require that, which is a way of saying, if you read The Road to Serfdom, which is you know the closest thing to his manifesto, or even the later work, while his issue was not to show the truth in Peguvian taxes, he was not a skeptic about the Peguvian taxes in principle. Okay, I think time for one, one, one more question. In, in your framework, uh, you, you put S epistemologically uh, favorable conditions as very central to thinking of an ideal decision. Is there such a thing as there being too much information or information overload? So that, you know, we tend to think of uh, unfavorable meaning a deficient amount of information, but can you see the opposite also being a problem that these days in particular, being, we're bombarded with so much information, uh, it's very hard to make sense of what we see, see and read all the time? There's a rumor out there that I've written a book recently called Too Much Information, and I can't deny that rumor. In other words, <laughs> I wrote a book called Too Much Information. So I spent a number of years on exactly this, and I agree with the question. So uh, to get hold of this from a point of view that has nothing necessarily to do with Hayek, if you have information that is useless, that, then it's not benefiting you. That's not a controversial thing to say. If you have an information that makes you miserable and scared, then that's a welfare loss, even if it's helpful to you. And so when we want to think of uh, people's searching for or avoiding information, uh, its perceived usefulness and its emotional impact both matter, and the second might crush the, the first. And when we're thinking about whether to provide information on welfare grounds, to think about are people going to benefit from it, which includes both the emotional effect and the uh, utility. Well, thank you very much, Kess. And thanks to all of you who've, who've posted questions in the chat. I've tried to capture some of the main themes in the, in the questions I've, I've posed to, to Kess. Um, 
thank th thank him for a really stimulating uh, uh, lecture um, for um, uh, um, supporting our Hayek program and and really uh, living up to the challenge of making the ideas in Hayek relevant to to some of the most important uh, debates that we're currently having, uh, particularly the, the, the one around climate change. There's so much here and, and, and so much uh, to, to be learned, but, but I think uh, Cass has, has really brought it to life today and, and, and put on the table many, many interesting ideas for which we're enormously grateful. It's been a real privilege to, to have you here and uh, to, to learn from you today. So thanks to everyone for, for being here and uh, um, hopefully you'll look out for further Hayek program events uh, down, down the line. Uh, good evening.